I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by Ethan Zuckerman, a leading academic, author, blogger, podcaster, public speaker, and all-round internet expert who is a founder of the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, and he's also a regular columnist for Prospect. And we asked him to write a column, uh, which is really a, a marvellous uh, cover story for our latest issue, the, Dow, the Dawn of the Splinternet, about how Russia is trying to disconnect from the global internet and create its own purified digital world. And in this essay, Ethan gives us a tour of the different national systems that are attempting to control the, their citizens' experiences of the internet and evaluates how successfully they manage it. So, Ethan... Let's begin with the basics. What is the Splinternet? The Splinternet, more than anything, is a theoretical concept. It's the idea that a country like China could decide to run its own internet with its own services, its own name service, i.e. the way that we resolve a name like google.com or the prospect.co.uk, that a country could do it completely independent of the rest of the world and therefore have increased control over what its citizens see and do online. We're both just about old enough, uh, you're, you're younger than I am, but um, to uh, remember the dawn of the internet and the utopian uh, dreams that that uh, were around at the time. Um did people imagine when when the internet was being created that such a thing would happen? Because I, I think we all imagined that this was going to be one big happy world where we're, we would all hold hands and, and um, live happily ever after. There are some amazing optimistic things said over the years about the challenge of censoring the internet. Uh, perhaps my favorite comes from the former U.S. President Bill Clinton, who said, it's almost impossible to censor the internet. It's like nailing jello to the wall. Now, the trick with this, and, and so jelly for my, my, my British uh, listeners yeah, here. We've got subtitles. Um, the um, Chinese jelly nailing technology has gotten awfully good these days. Um, the Chinese firewall is uh, sort of the one to watch in terms of global impact. 
Um, and within China, it's an extremely controlled information environment where it's very difficult for Chinese citizens to get access to international platforms, by which we often mean U.S.-based platforms. Part of what China's done is created a very efficient firewall. The other part of what they've done is they've created services that Chinese users like to use. And as a result, you don't necessarily see millions of Chinese users clamoring for access to Twitter or to YouTube because often they have better domestic alternatives. Those two things seem to be critical in maintaining high um, effectiveness in internet censorship. You need to both have a very powerful firewall to prevent certain actions, and you need a domestic internet that is interesting and generative and captures people's attention. So the, the Russian technique is very different. Tell, tell us about how the Russians are doing it instead. Well, um, in a funny way, it, it resembles a little bit what we've seen in Russia's war on Ukraine in general, which is, I think at first, we expected that Russia would be technologically advanced and capable of doing mighty things. Um, and we're now discovering that our assessment of Russia's capabilities um, may have been an overassessment. Russia claimed as of last year that they were building the capability of separating their domestic internet from the rest of the global internet. And they claim to have done a set of tests around this. Net scholars don't really have evidence that these tests were carried out. Um, at the very least, if these tests occurred, they did not actually disconnect the vast majority of Russians from the global internet. But they claimed that they knew how to do this. And then as Putin's war has been going increasingly badly, and there's been concern about conversation on these less censored US hosted platforms, Russia has said that it is blocking Facebook, it's blocking Twitter. The truth is, we can't really find much evidence for those blocks. Some Russian ISPs are blocking that traffic. Many of them are not. And what this means is that a service like Instagram, which might have had 40 million Russian users, now seems to have 30 million Russian users. There are fewer, but it is certainly not the splinter net as we tend to think about it. What it actually seems to be is a quite leaky firewall. You begin the piece by telling the story of the Kremvax hoax. Can you, can you tell us more about that? Sure. At, at, the longer I spend on the internet, the more I find that I often have to go very far back in history to understand the dynamics and patterns that we're dealing with today. You and I can both remember 1984. It's the height of the Cold War. The internet at that point is mostly an academic curiosity. It's U.S. dominated. It's been funded by U.S. military research. And suddenly, um, on a, a bright April day in 1984, um, Konstantin Chernyenko, uh, the leader of the Soviet Union, uh, alerts everyone that the Soviets have just joined the internet and invites everyone to raise a glass of vodka in toast. 
And uh, Usenet, where this is occurring, freaks out. Um, some people are excited about this. Many people are skeptical. Some are extremely angry uh, about the idea that that Soviet propaganda might be coming through these channels. But there's an enormous amount of credulity. And the reason there is so much credulity is that it actually would have been very simple for Russia to join the Internet. They just needed someone to connect a phone line. Um, what we've actually learned in retrospect, didn't find this one out until maybe five or six years ago, there was actually a single Soviet scientist who was routinely on this early academic internet from 1982 onwards. And so for me, it, it adds um, a special charm to the Kremvax hoax, because of course it was a hoax. It was not Chernyanko. There was no machine called Kremvax. Russia, the Soviet Union for the most part, was not online in a meaningful way until between 87 and 89. But it was possible, and it was possible as early as 82. And for me, this is a lesson in connectivity. It's actually much easier to connect to the internet than it is to disconnect from the internet, um, even all those years ago. We, we, you've talked a bit about the, the, the so-called leaky censorship um, that, that's happening in, in Russia. It, it doesn't seem to be, from what you're saying, working very well. What are the other models? Because your your, your piece is truly global and it, it, it roams around the world. Just give us a, a talk a, a little about the, the models that other countries are trying. So I'm going to do something very peculiar here, and therefore I'm going to put um, apologies and constraints on it. Um, but I'm going to speak in praise of Saudi Arabian internet censorship. Um, nothing in doing this uh, endorses anything else about Saudi media policy or, frankly, any other policies. But one thing that Saudi actually has done quite well um, from early on in the internet is be extraordinarily transparent about what's going on. If you are in Saudi Arabia and you try to access uh, an adult pornographic site, you will simply get a very straightforward warning saying that's being blocked by the government because it is not consistent with Islamic values. And it will then have an appeal form. If you end up saying, no, 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 you're wrong. This is not how this should be classified. You can appeal. Uh, and we've done this. I actually appealed on behalf of Global Voices at one point and got it unblocked. Um, so there's actually this sort of transparent measure. It tracks a number of subjects. Uh, in Saudi, they block um, adult content, they block alcohol, they block marijuana, they block pornography. But it's actually fairly narrow. Um, we might consider that sort of conventional censorship. Uh, and I'm calling on the Saudis in particular because they're they're quite transparent about it. Um, not all are. There are countries that simply switch off the internet for periods of time. The most notorious offender in this case is um, the, the purported democracy, India, um, which at one point turned off the internet in Kashmir for the better part of a year. Uh, and so you suddenly had people with no internet access at all. When they finally turned it on again, they turned it on, but only at 2G, uh, making it difficult to do sort of anything uh, involving heavy connectivity, streaming and such. 
And this was done as a security measure. This was done as a way of uh, trying to tamp down a dissent in Kashmir, tamp down on Muslim-Hindu tensions. Um, but it's not talked enough about, and it, it really is um, sort of one of the great examples of internet censorship out there. And India continues to do this uh, in situations where the government feels threatened. They are comfortable turning off the internet altogether in the areas where they see a threat. Then there are the countries that know what they're doing. Uh, and really, China is the, is the standout there. Um, and China has an internet that is extremely difficult to evade censorship of. In a country like Saudi Arabia, if you want to continue looking at pornography and looking at liquor ads, you can use something called a virtual private network. This is basically a way of changing the internet address you're using from being within Saudi to using one within Great Britain, for instance, where you have very few internet restrictions. So VPN essentially says, no, no, I'm, I'm not in uh, Jeddah anymore. I'm actually in Birmingham. Give me the content. China quite actively prevents the use of these VPNs. Um, they're very good at blocking many of the techniques used to evade internet censorship. They even seem to be good at blocking new attempts at internet censorship. We've had some very smart people go into China, try to set up novel forms of VPNs and have them shut down within days, which suggests that it might not even be humans who are in charge of this blocking. It might be artificially intelligent systems, which is quite remarkable. I remember looking when, when we were looking at the, the documents from Edward Snowden's archive, you could see the internal debates about the so-called the TOR, the, the onion router, which was an attempt to uh, 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 correct me because of my, my, I will get the technology wrong, but it was an attempt to uh, create a, a way of anonymously using the internet. Um, it, 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 that still runs into problems in in in, um, in China. It does. So the Chinese are very concerned about projects like Tor. So remember, I talked about the virtual private network, and this is a way of saying. Mm -hmm. No, no, I'm not in Beijing. Uh, actually, I'm in Liverpool. Um, the problem there is that the person running the virtual private network in Liverpool knows full well that you were in Beijing and also knows that you are taking a look at your favorite pornographic site. So in that sense, it's not a particularly trustworthy mechanism if you are concerned about being followed. Tor is very concerned about having a high degree of anonymity. What it actually does is sets up three different virtual private networks. So from Beijing, you bounce to Liverpool, and then you bounce to Vienna, and then you bounce to Washington, D.C., and then you access the Internet. And through that combination of bounces and through encryption, it's very, very difficult for anyone to figure out where you are coming from. China is quite aggressive at blocking Tor. It does it by looking for the entry points to the network. And it basically says, we're not going to allow you to go into the network and make those three hops in the first place. So I think what I would say is 
consider the world to have places that have fairly easily evaded censorship, and that would be the Saudis and many other countries, consider other parts of the world to have censorship that's quite effective, but turns everything off, which only gets done periodically and only done during times of conflict. And then there's a very, very small number of countries capable of running censorship at the level of the Chinese. One of the questions was, are the Russians at the level of the Chinese? And there were reasons to think they might be. Like the Chinese, the Russians are somewhat linguistically isolated. Um, They are the home of the most Russian speakers. And they also host their own internet services. There are very lively communities around sites like Vkontakte and Onnaklasiki. And the thought might be Russians would be okay with being knocked off of Instagram or Facebook and content using those domestic services. But what we've seen so far is no, absolutely not. Um, The Russians are currently not up to it. Their tech simply isn't up to snuff. End-to-end encryption is, in Western terms, a, a thing that is either wonderful or worries governments. Um, it, it, is end-to-end encryption the answer, or the, are the Chinese too good at that as well? So end-to-end encryption helps protect your message in transit. But if you can look at that end and say, oh, that end is in the United States, and that end is associated with Twitter... China is simply going to say, nope, sorry, we're not going to allow you to do that. So end-to-end encryption is critically important for the security of messages. What it doesn't help us with is most of these censorship strategies. So what China is really concerned about in many ways is um, information or propaganda that could have strong domestic effect. Falun Gong, for instance, is one of the things that China is most trying to prevent people from accessing. What China has gotten very good at doing is identifying web servers, other internet addresses associated with Falun Gong groups, and simply saying, I don't particularly care what's in that message. I simply don't want to interact with that IP address. I don't want anyone within China in contact with those people because end-to-end encryption um, might make it possible for, for them to share information that we are concerned about. So it's enormously important in terms of if the government wants to surveil your messages and know what's going on, but it is not nearly as important when it comes to um, censorship. And what I think most of us have been expecting out of uh, the, the Russian situation is censorship in part so that the Putin regime doesn't have to deal with the very ugly realities on the ground of how poorly this war is going for Russian forces. You write that the quotes presumption that people want unfiltered information may unfortunately be flawed. What did you mean by that? There was a big movement in the United States under the leadership of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. It was called the Internet Freedom Agenda. And there was a great deal of investment made into tools to help people jump the Chinese firewall, 
people in Iran, people in Cuba, traditional enemies of the United States trying to help people um, evade conventional internet censorship. These efforts were often technically quite brilliant. Um, some of them were extremely successful in technical terms. They had a hard time getting uptake. They tended to be used by people who had specific need of them. So again, you know, leaders in the Falun Gong movement, certain Cuban dissidents, for instance. What they never did was achieve widespread usage. And I think the key to understand behind this is that in many countries, the censored internet is still pretty interesting. We tend to think censorship and we think sterile and boring and lifeless. The truth is the Chinese internet is pretty interesting even with significant censorship going on. Um, censorship tends to come into place on domestic services around things that are trying to get people out into the streets. That's sort of the one thing the Chinese government won't tolerate. But, you know, discussions of even something as sensitive as Tiananmen often will end up allowed to survive on Chinese domestic platforms. Many years ago, my colleague Rebecca McKinnon did a study where she posted on 10 different domestic Chinese platforms some of the most sensitive texts you can think of. Um, so, you know, stories about Tiananmen, other aspects of Chinese history that would be very likely to be censored. Most of the texts did end up being blocked, but none of them were blocked universally, which is to say of all those different services, at least one service within China at that point allowed the content to stand at least for a couple of weeks. So there really is lively political debate going on on the Chinese internet. The other thing is that 98% of people, politics is not the primary thing they're doing on the internet. They are looking for singing competitions. They are looking for cute photographs of cats. And the Chinese internet, even heavily censored, even blocked from most US-based sites, um, has an ample supply of cute cat pictures. And it turns out that if you can maintain a sufficient level of cute cat pictures and celebrity videos and singing contests and other things to be excited about, the vast majority of internet users couldn't care less whether you are censoring the particularly sensitive political content. My, my final question, uh, Ethan, if, as you suggest, splinternets do become the norm rather than the exception, what does this mean for global society? So, so far in this piece, we don't see evidence that Russia is heading towards a splinternet. But we could imagine Russia getting more serious and going there. Increasingly, I can imagine India going there because they have been willing to block the internet in such big, profound ways. I think one of the things we lose is the liberatory potential from some of these services. Um, certainly the narrative is overblown, it's perhaps celebrated too much, but Facebook had an enormous amount to do with the Arab Spring, and particularly in Tunisia, where Facebook was the mechanism through which video of protests on the ground became shared with networks like Al Jazeera, which ended up broadcasting it back into Tunisia, which has to do with how Ben Ali was ousted. 
So there really are good reasons to be excited about Internet's liberatory potentials, even at a moment where so many people are doing such terrible things. If we end up with splinter nets becoming common, that's much, much harder to accomplish. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is one that came up in talking with um, Angela Wu about her work on the Chinese internet, where she says that actually a decent amount of U.S. news circulates behind the firewall. But unfortunately, it's usually mis or disinformation. The people who are crossing the firewall, they're making the effort to try to get information from outside of China, are often bringing back conspiracy theories, mal and misinformation, and then there's no way to check it, right? One of the nice things about an open internet is that you can cross-check and verify. But if all you're getting are these little snippets that are sort of secreted in, there's no way to be able to contextualize and find out whether it's true or not. So my prediction is if we end up in a world of splinter nets, it is a world in which our information about other countries is of lower and lower quality and where we are wrestling more and more often with conspiracy theory uh, rather than the actual truth on the ground. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it from us. Grab a copy of Prospect Magazine. It's available on newsstands now with Ethan's wonderful cover story or you can go to a subscription.prospectmagazine all one word.co.uk to subscribe and you'll also find fantastic writing in this edition from Mike Brearley, Sheila Hancock, Brenda Hale, uh, Sam Friedman and many others. Thank you for joining us. Thank you Ethan again and uh, I look forward to meeting you or uh, virtually at the next Prospect podcast next week. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.